Nicholas Cage. Very sincere group of film enthusiasts who are proudly cinephiles. Oh my goodness! Warren Beatty apparently read the wrong name. This is incredible. Moonlight won Best Picture. Cinephile. Ethan Hawke. It's kind of like I'm a professional actor and I direct for love. There's so much in this world that's dividing us. And music is one of those great tools that brings us together. All right. There's baseball and World War II. It's kind of <laughs> a dream. Cinephile. The Adnan Verk Movie Podcast. All right. Yes. Why wasn't I still recording? That would have been gold. Gonna run that as the open. open. Spike Lee would contend, I guess, that the sober approach will no longer suffice, that the age we inhabit is too drunk on its own craziness. He has a point. That's from Anthony Lane of the New Yorker, his review of Black Klansman, Spike Lee's roaring return to form, 97% on Rotten Tomatoes, fifth at the box office, 10.8 million and 1,500 screens. Speaking of box office, Alec Bloom is going to be our special guest today. He knows everything when it comes to the box office because he works for Fantasy Movie League. Check out the app. Our friend Matthew Barry, of course, is a big part of that as well. And so Alec is going to tell us the box office winners and losers. Documentaries did great. Which superhero movies were a disappointment? Which ones could still do well later in the year? So, And plus, he's got some great trivia for us. God, I mean, he, he knows cinephiles, so he tailored it towards me and my boys, Dan Stanzik and Rick Passmore. There are references to uh, Paul Giamatti and Al Pacino and Robert De Niro and Stanley Tucci, and my guy did his homework. So thanks to Alec for doing that. And a welcome back to all of you. Been a minute, as the kids say. A solid month without cinephile, a major milestone as I turned 40. And thanks to Dan Stancic for being a part of the birthday video, which my wife surprised me with. I am so insecure about turning 40. So thankfully, my friend Gabe Oppenheim gave me some movie-related things about it. He pointed out, because he knows Akira is my favorite Kurosawa movie, and he said, well, he made it when he was 42, and he didn't get it released till he was 48. And also that Yasujiro Ozu made Tokyo Story in his 50s. And Kurosawa was making movies into his 80s. So that's all good news. But I always go back to the fact Orson Welles made the greatest movie ever made when he was 25 years old. So you know what? Past 25, it's all downhill from there. But thanks to everybody as I uh, now reach middle age. I'm so insecure, too. Now, I ask people randomly, I go, how old do you think I look? And they're like, I don't know, 36? I'm like, yeah, all right, I got four years off. That's great. Like, I'm, I'm getting 36, 37, 38. So I'm like, all right, shave two years off. I'm like, all right, it's a win. Pathetic. We got lots of movies to review. So in the interest of expediency, I'm going to review a few of these first and we're going to talk to Alec and then I'm going to just like try to hammer through, which I recognize are not <laughs> to everyone's taste, the foreign films and the children's movies that I saw. So let's devote a lot of our time here to Black Klansman and Spike Lee. You know, with Spike Lee, he's going to make a provocative film and it's going to be about race in America, but it's been an awfully long time since he was relevant. And as I tweeted, this was his best film since Inside Man, which Dan had last time as his focus on every man, a movie that he loves, and rightfully so. So this is the first great movie Spike's made in 20, 12 years. And somebody rightfully tweeted me, well, it's not, it's not like saying much. I'm like, well, you're right. The Sweet Blood of Jesus, Chirac was a mess, a musical set in Chicago. John Cusack's playing this preacher. It was all over the place. Miracle at St. Anna, which I think is terrible. Ben Lyons actually likes it, which is amazing. At 33% of Rotten Tomatoes, a friend of mine was like laughing in the theater at the end. He was like, it was just like preposterous. Two hours and 40 minute war movie. I mean, it's just, it's been bad. And I often wonder like with, with actors and artists, just like with athletes, I think sometimes you just get past your prime. Like I worry about it with Mammoth. He's 70 years old. I'm like, he hasn't made anything relevant in over a decade. Like you've got so much to say. You put out your creative output and I think eventually it just dries up on you. And I was worried with Spike. I said, maybe he's just those great movies that I love. Do the right thing, and Malcolm X are my top 10 all-time. 
you know, I love jazz, so I love Mo Better Blues and Denzel playing this trumpeter, conflicted about emotion. And uh, Spike's dad was a jazz musician, and the way he ends it with Coltrane's Love Supreme. I think Jungle Fever is a, a really prescient movie about interracial relationships back in 1991. Uh, Crooklyn, if you like a good family movie, He Got Game is obviously a great basketball movie. Dan loves. So I'm like, there was that era, like whatever, when Spike was churning out from like, she's got to have it school days, his first two films. But like from 89 to 98, it was like, yeah, every. 25th Hour, I think, has some great moments in there. Wonderful ending. Uh, very melancholy. I like Ed Norton's one rant, which is an homage to do the right thing. Clockers, I think, is very underrated. So my point is that he had this incredible run. He was clearly one of the best directors in America. But then just, you know, the documentaries are notable. Four Little Girls certainly is impactful. When the Levees Broke, his Hurricane Katrina documentaries. But then just some of these movies weren't weren't as successful. And I think credit goes to Spike A for still making movies. You know, Ben Lyons and me, he's like Woody Allen. He just keeps churning them out. Even if they're good or not, there's enough of audience for Spike. And he's not a guy who needs a big budget. Give me four or five million, I'll make the movie. So when it came to Black Klansman, Jordan Peele called him and goes, I got six words for you. Black man infiltrates KKK. And he's like, what? And and Spike said the first thing he thought about was the famous Chappelle sketch. And he's like, no, no, this is like a real thing. This is a guy named John... Uh, Ron Stallworth, John so the NFL player, Ron Stallworth, um, and he was a police officer in the Colorado Springs who impersonated a, a white voice and then had a proxy go there and actually infiltrate the KKK. So Spike was like, let's do this. Uh, and I love the tagline for it. And we've talked in the past about great taglines. Infiltrate hate. Great tagline for Black Klansmen. So you would think that, you know, all the, um, all the notes add up here for Spike as far as the way that he can make. And it got rave reviews at the Cannes Film Festival. He won the Grand Prix, which is the runner-up prize. And I'm just thrilled to see a, a great artist back in his group, right? It's just good to see somebody who can still hit a fastball of the park, and Spike does it. And I think you know going in it's going to be a film that's very provocative, and it's very timely about race, and he's certainly drawing allusions to the present-day administration, what was happening in the 1970s, and the audience is laughing along with a couple of jokes, and he's clearly – I mean, there's, subtlety is never a strength of Spike's. He's going to let you know what he feels. Um, even the open, not to spoil it too much for people, but it's Alec Baldwin who's playing this racist who's <laughs> spewing. And so the first thing of Alec Baldwin, of course, is Trump. And then the movie ends with Trump and Charlottesville. And the movie was very much time to coincide with what happened in Charlottesville a year ago. But I'll say this. If you're somebody who doesn't want all that political stuff, if you're someone, let's say you're a Trump supporter and say, okay, listen, I'm, I'm tired of hearing that Trump's racist and I don't want to hear about this. And I want to focus on the period piece. I do think Black Klansman is still very successful as a story about undercover police work. As a guy who likes a good cop movie, I thought that aspect of it was still very strong. So I think that's important to tell you. I don't want to browbeat you and say, oh, it's a Spike Lee movie, so it's a lot about race and black versus white. Well, yeah, but it's also really fascinating about undercover police work. And if you like Donnie Brasco, as I do, then you'll love this movie and those scenes where Adam Driver's playing this undercover cop who's pretending to be this virulent racist and yet is worried about being found out. So I, I think, again, kind of like Inside Man, which is an atypical Spike film that you don't think it has its hallmarks, it still is an entertaining genre film. And he fits within that genre while still putting in his own uh, flourishes and touches. And the real surprise is this. It's awfully funny. And that's what I was really happy that Spike was able to do. There are scenes that are cringeworthy. I mean, it's 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 you want to take a shower. It's just painful the way the KKK is talking about blacks and gays and Jews in America. And it's just so hateful. And yet Spike was so smart to say, but I've got to have scenes of levity. And that's not to say he's laughing at the KKK, although uh, Doe for Grace, terrific as David Duke, did not realize he would be able to handle that role. But it's also just, again, the moments of police work between, between Spike Lee 
um, you know, directing these actors. Driver's fantastic. He's playing a Jewish character who's a lapsed Jew who's not that religious, but he finds that the deeper he goes into this case, the more he's thinking about his Judaism. And the actor who's the lead of the role, I haven't even mentioned yet, is Denzel Washington's son, John David Washington. So how cool is that? Denzel was making movies with Spike back in the 90s, and now his kid is a star of it. Now, I thought he was fine. For everybody who's saying he's the next breakout star, I would caution against that. I thought he was fine. Uh, I didn't think he was the star of the movie. I thought Driver was excellent. And a couple of the guys in the KKK, I mean, they were so good at being so bad and so malevolent. I actually thought his his casting was excellent across the board. And he's still got Nick Turturro in there just because, you know, he's an old Spike regular. But I think it's important to note that it's provocative and it's ferocious and it's um, inspiring and it's going to make you angry. But it's also funny and it's also damn entertaining. I mean, he's got a couple moments that are pure crowd pleasers. The crowd just started clapping. I'm like, you know what? Good for Spike to realize I can make a movie that's important to me, but I want to entertain people. And I think it's um, I think it's a real return to relevance for him and a real success. And immediately people say, well, he's going to win the Oscar. I'm like, listen, it's tough for movies in the summer to be rewarded. But if there's a movie that's going to break through, yeah, that's the one so far. I think that especially, and we haven't gotten into this yet, the whole Oscars uh, <laughs> controversy about naming this most popular film. As Lyons immediately texted me, he goes, well, if ever there was an award they're going to get Black Panther, this is the one. I mean... What are the nominees going to be? Black Panther, Avengers Infinity War, maybe this MI, Mission Impossible film. Not only Jurassic World did that well with the critics, but like it's going to be those movies. And he's like, so Black Panther's not going to get nominated in the Best Picture race, which, I mean, it's just going to infuriate people. Although, as noted, I wasn't crazy about Black Panther, so I will not be one of those people with pitchforks and torches, depending how the rest of the year goes. But I'm thrilled that Black Klansman is going to get in there. I mean, to be perfectly blunt about it, there were some who were saying, well, you're going to split the black vote. You're going to have Black Panther, Black Klansman, and there are those who like Sorry to Bother You, which is my worst movie of the year. So in essence, I guess you could say Black Panther is going to win the most popular film at the Oscars. Black Klansman, if there's 10 nominees and it's Spike's best movie in, in over a decade, depending how the rest of the year goes, maybe he's got a shot at a Best Director nomination. God forbid. I mean, it's, just, it's eluded him to actually win an Oscar. I don't want to go that far. But if Jordan Peele can get nominated for Get Out in February, maybe Spike's got a chance. So that's kind of the backstory to it. But listen, it's a really good movie. So just go see an entertaining, funny movie, which is serious and which is provocative. I'm giving it four Maple Leafs. It is my best film so far of 2018. Ricky, have you seen it? Any thoughts on Spike's Ovra or the film? Haven't seen it, but I'm about to uh, go on my weekend here from work. Just got back from vacation. It's high on my list. I'm definitely checking it out. Dan Stanzik all in. We, 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 I mean, I'm willing to do Black Klansman again after our Fleming's dinner this week, but I, you have to get up at like, you know, 2.30 in the morning, so that's not going to happen. But you just love Spike. On the Knicks fandom alone, then after that, it's gravy. Oh, yeah. Spike's my guy. I'm all in. And Denzel Washington Jr., let's go. I was, yeah, this is definitely in your wheelhouse. Um, a couple more to discuss, one of which is uh, this documentary. So it's the summer of documentaries, and Alec is going to explain that RBG has been a real success, the Mr. Rogers documentary, which we've discussed and also this film called Three Identical Strangers. So I want to get into this a little bit. Amazing story. And I'd be curious, like, if if Rick's parents or Dan's parents remember this story. Because that was the first thought I had while I'm watching it unfold. I'm like, well, how big a story was this at the time? And um, this happened in the early 80s. So the, the documentary, first off, starts out in a really smart way, which is you've got one of the identical strangers telling what happened, which is that he goes to a college dorm, and everywhere he goes, everyone's recognizing him. But they're not calling him by his name. So they're going, well, let's say the name was Jimmy. Whatever. Like, hey, Jimmy, what's up, man? He's like, hey, how you doing? And then somebody else is like, hey, good to see you again. Like, yeah. I'm like, oh, remember that time we got wasted last time? And he goes, girls are coming up to me and like hugging and kissing me. And I'm like, what, what is going on here? Like, what, what universe am I in right now? And then eventually he gets to the dorm where he is a freshman and he meets another guy and he goes, you're never going to believe this. 
because he and he tells a story now. He goes like, when I was looking at him, I said, "Oh my God, it's whatever the name was." He, you got a twin brother, and he goes, "He goes, your twin brother was here, and that's why everybody thinks that you're him." He goes, "Just come with me, let's go." And they drive there, and like literally knocks on the guy's door. His brother answers it, and it's like, "Oh my God!" And just just imagine right now, if I'm telling any of you right now, listening, imagine you had an identical brother or identical sister. Like you just you've lived your whole life. Like wait, what? Plus, he was uh, it was an only child. That's how he was raised. And oh my God, I have a twin. So already they're just going bananas, and the story gets picked up by one of the New York papers and gets published. And then the craziest thing: there's a third brother who sees the story and writes it. Goes, oh my God, they're my brothers as well. So you go with that hook to the story: identical triplets who were separated at birth and adopted by three different families. Years later, their reunion now becomes a global sensation. And the reason why I say your parents or everyone's parents listening, it's like, because then you see them on the talk show circuit. They're on Donahue and they all dress the same way and they talk the same way and they smoke the same cigarettes and they have the same interest in women. They're all like, yeah, a little older. I'm like, mm, all right, all right. Um, and it's like, the, the, it's amazing. Like you're looking in the mirror, all these guys and, and they're on the talk shows and the newspapers. I'm like, yeah, they open a restaurant together and they're, they're identical triplets. And one of them grew up middle working class. One grew up middle class. And they're all laughing. They got one guy. He's the rich one. He's got like a dad's a doctor, mom's a lawyer. Like, oh my God. And now they're all tight. And then you're wondering where the story's going, which is just already fascinating that this is existing and it's crisp and it's good storytelling. And then the big reveal comes, which I will not spoil for you. I know I, I enjoy a good spoiler heavy review, but I won't want to spoil this for you because A, I think if you want to know what happened, you can just Google it because it is a true story. And B, maybe people remember it, but there's a, a big hook. And all of a sudden you go, whoa, whoa, uh, this story, which was kind of light and frilly all of a sudden took a drastic downward turn. And then you start to learn more about how these triplets were separated. And now the story becomes like Dr. Caligari. And all of a sudden now it's like Frankenstein. Like, wait, wait, what? There's like government experiments going on and that there was this nefarious plot to separate triplets for the sake of scientific research. And now you go from watching this film, which was, as I said, light and enjoyable to now you've, you're feeling queasy and uncomfortable going, well, how is this happening? And how sad is this? And there's nothing more depressing. I don't think I had a more depressing moment in a movie this summer when they show a couple of the babies, and I don't know if it was the actual twins, but they show the babies together and they said, you don't know how impactful that is to a baby to always be sleeping beside your brother and then all of a sudden to be taken away. And I said, what a despairing thought. I mean, I don't, I don't know what everyone's relationship is with their siblings, but just imagine if you had siblings and you never even knew about it. And like that warmth, like a child, like, you know, when a baby's held by a father or a daughter or parent, like there's nothing like that. And similarly, when it's a sibling to be in the crib together like that, like it's, you can't even put words on that. And I'm like, it just that emotion and the way they tell that story, I said, that's just horrifying that this happened, that these guys were separated. And then they go deeply into the story behind, behind all of it. So I thought it was a terrific documentary. I hope I didn't spoil too much, but I'm giving it three and a half maple leaves. Check out three identical strangers. Ricky, this will be in your wheelhouse. You like a good documentary. Have you seen it? Yeah, I'm definitely going to check this one out. Uh, I remember reading about it when it was hitting the festival circuits, and I was intrigued by it because I just thought it was the just the life of three people that were separated at birth. But then all the the darker stuff that came out about it, I'm I'm all in on this one. Dan Sanzik is one of six. His daughters are twins. Could you imagine if sisters? That'd be weird. Sister, sister, sister. Imagine if, if Moore and Elizabeth had no idea that they were twins and then. Yeah, it's crazy. I can't even imagine. There was this uh, movie on Netflix a few years ago. I remember about, uh, two Asian girls that were separated at birth. 
uh, the movie's called Twinsters, and they were, you know, it's a happy ending, and I immediately sent it to my sisters and told them to watch it, and they loved it. I didn't know that this film had this dark, twisting ending, and I, I don't even know if I'm going to see it. All right, one more for you before we get to Alec Bloom. I'll make this one relatively quick. You Were Never Really Here, which is currently available on DVD. This got released in April by Lynn Ramsey. Fairly noted director if you're into this type of genre of film. But I just, again, the hook, and I've discussed this before, that oftentimes if you compare the movie to something, I'm in. And all the reviews kept saying, homage to Taxi Driver, kind of like Taxi Driver, etc. And as I watched it, I'm like, okay, yeah, lonely outcast, back from the war, searching for meaning, tries to rescue a prostitute. Like, as I'm watching the movie, I'm like, why don't you just call it Taxi Driver 2? Like, I mean, essentially, that's what the movie is. But I'm not against that. I'm never that person saying, why are you ripping it off? Because I'm like, no, if you're paying homage, hell, if I was a director, all my movies would just be Raging Bull and Taxi Driver and Goodfellas. I'm like, yeah, just, I love Marty, so I'm just going to make my version of his movies. So I'm okay with that. But I did think that this movie was was dark and despairing. And one of those movies that was maybe more interesting than actually a quality film. Joaquin Phoenix is excellent in the movie. I mean, he's forget about taciturn. He's monosyllabic. Like he's just got this gigantic beard and he's this contract killer. And he is surprisingly tender towards his mom who he lives with, but he's clearly searching for meaning and he's just a dark, bad dude. And when he comes across a cause that he believes in and saving this girl, then he's all in. So I don't think it's a movie for all. I did think it was more interesting, as I said, to talk about it and to think about it, like in film circles and such. But I did think it was an, a very good movie. I don't think it was great, but it was a very good movie. So I'm giving it three Maple Leafs. It's currently available on DVD. If you love Tax Driver as much as I do, if you like Joaquin Phoenix, or if you like Lynn Ramsey's work, I would recommend You Were Never Really Here. Now it's time for Alec Bloom. All right, a real pleasure to bring in Alec Bloom. That's right, Alec like Baldwin Bloom, like Judy Bloom. He is launching a new podcast for Fantasy Movie League called Cinefool, which is clearly inspired by Cinephile, but also... Um, a callback to his old podcast, Unwritten Fools of Cinema, which you can listen to. I'm actually going to be a guest on his podcast next week. But his main affiliation is with Fantasy Movie League, and Alec is going to help us break down the box office winners and losers of this summer. Alec, first and foremost, I know you're a fan of the podcast, so thank you for that, and thank you mm-hmm. for coming on today. Yeah, a huge fan of the podcast. I really love you guys. I've uh, been listening to you ever since you started this thing up. Thank you for having me on, and I think it's very, very cool that you are the only movie podcast on ESPN. I don't know how you pulled that off, but I'm very glad it happened. So, Listen, Dan Stanzik and I figured out a way, man. As Dan once said, uh, what was the expression, you do it, you plead for ignorance afterwards or something like that? What's the exact <laughs> word? It's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. Yeah, there you go. Boom. That's how we do things around here. Um, and I, I, Dan and Rick and I have talked about this. It's been a fairly underwhelming summer, at least by our standards. I know we're going to focus mm-hmm. on the financial dollars. I'm just saying of movies that I loved. If you said to me last year, I'm like, hey, we had Dunkirk, we had The Big Sick. This year, I'd say Black Klansman, Three Identical Strangers is all right. I mean, the documentaries have been a major story. RBG, um, <clears throat> the Mr. Rogers documentary, Can You Be My Neighbor? But in terms of the big winners, it feels like it's superhero movies and documentaries, which isn't something I thought I'd be saying in mid-August. Right, exactly. Yeah, well, it's pretty much a staple for every summer that it's going to be the superhero movies that dominate, usually Marvel and then whatever DC has coming out. But that's pretty much everything uh, bringing in the the money is going to be coming from some sort of superhero. So, yeah, you mentioned the, the documentaries, which is probably my number one surprise, really, of this summer is just how well they did and how many of them there were. I mean, you mentioned Mr. Rogers. Uh, Won't You Be My Neighbor, that thing was huge. I think it brought in about $21 million somehow. I don't know how it pulled that off. Um, then you have 
Uh, what were the other two? Oh, you mentioned uh, RBG, and when you were talking to me earlier, you mentioned it, my girl RBG, which I wasn't aware that she was. But what, my, my, here, here's my thing: why she's my girl here? Because I completely support what she's about. But I I cannot mm-hmm. fathom how I can get off my couch and I'm going to go spend twelve bucks to go see this thing, <laughs> right? But it's been a smash. Like if somebody said you Ruth Bader Ginsburg box office star, that's about as tough a sell as I can imagine. Yet it's been a big smash, right? Well, it's huge. It brought in a very impressive $13 million. And, you know, who knew the notorious RBG would represent like that? But <laughs> you don't know, now you know. I personally haven't seen it. I don't know if you made it out to the theater to see it. It sounded like you weren't ready to get off your couch for it. To me, that's, that's going to be a rental. But um, actually, I haven't seen any of the three big documentaries that we have here. You mentioned the three identical strangers as well. But, you know, all three of these that we mentioned cracked the top 30 of all time as far as, you know, box office dollars for documentaries with uh, Mr. Rogers residing just outside the top 10 at number 12. Didn't see that coming. We didn't have a whole lot of um, successful documentaries last year. I think we had Born in China from Disney. I think that was really the only big one as far as uh, box office dollars are concerned. But yeah, very, very impressive uh, performance from the, the documentary genre. So the docs do well. Superhero movies. I mean, Deadpool 2 did well. Obviously, Avengers Infinity War. Maybe it's a little bit before the summer. Obviously, it was a smash. But Star Wars, I think that's the headline, right? Did not do well. And in fact, it was such a disappointment. They're going to discontinue making some of these movies. Well, supposedly. You never know with uh, uh, with uh, over at LucasArts there if they're going to be... They can change, you know, pretty much. It's, they're very much like movie pass. They can change from week to week of what they say they're going to do or what's reported from the studio of what they're going to do. Um, but Solo, I mean, the production issues were well-documented and chronicled. It's really, that was another big surprise for me. Not so much that it pretty much failed at the box office, but that Ron Howard somehow righted that ship and was at, actually able to come up with a, a competent blockbuster movie that... You know, it had some mixed reviews, but it wasn't a horrible movie, and it probably should have been. But uh, a Disney movie, let alone let alone a Star Wars movie, not making money is uh, kind of unfathomable, actually. And it's hard for me to, uh, to believe that, but there we are. Solo, a Star Wars story, not making money. <laughs> it is bizarre to think that way. You know what I thought? I read the other day about comedies. There was no major comedy this summer. Every summer you go, yeah, there's no. a hangover. There's an Amy Schumer train wreck. The no. biggest grossing comedy of this year is Game Night, which grossed $69 million. How'd that happen? How are there no big budget comedies everyone's going to see? There's just not a lot of inventive comedy out there unless, I mean, I will argue that Deadpool 2 is pure comedy. I really don't even consider that in the superhero genre. I know I get some. Uh, push back on that, but I mean, it is pure comedy. That's what it's trying to be. It's going for the laugh. It's not going for story. Well, we'll argue that Deadpool 2 was trying to pull out a, a decent story and it failed miserably, but it was very, very funny. But yeah, I mean, what would we have this summer? Tag was supposed to be pretty big comedy <laughs> and it wasn't. You know, it just, everything feels very run of the mill. And, you know, there's just not a lot of great comedy out there, especially like with ensemble, like these big ensemble casts and like these supposed to be these, these big tag like movies, they really underperform because it's just kind of been there, done that. And so we're not really getting anything, uh, uh, I don't know, I, I guess theater worthy, unless you have something like the big sick, which you mentioned that we had last year, that was a very funny comedy, but that was more than your typical run of the mill, you know, uh, uh, popular 
you know, somewhat slick, I guess. But we just don't get too many of those, unfortunately. It's just kind of a lot, a lot of tag-like stuff. Yeah, in terms of romantic comedy, Crazy Rich Asians is a good story. Again, kind of like The Big Sick, you're you're going towards an un, uh, underserved public in that there's not a lot of films with Asian stars that serve Asian audiences, mm-hmm. and that's done really well. And I don't know if it's going to be a true box office smash, but I, I think that's one of those movies that you go, all right, just might like the Joy Luck Club, based on a best-selling book, does well. Again, underserved mm-hmm. market, maybe you'll see more of this because of the fact Hollywood wants to make money. So fine, we're going to have Asian stars in movies. Let's do that then. Let's make more money. Yeah, and that movie uh, is coming out today, actually. And we talked about it extensively on the the actual Fantasy Movie League podcast that we call FML My Life. And yes, we do use the FML acronym for Fantasy Movie League. You know you're not the first person to, to recognize that if, uh, if you're listening. Um, but yeah, we talked about the, the buzz and the hype and the basically the trend that this movie, uh, Crazy Rich Asians, um, that it's on right now, it, it's poised for a big breakout this weekend. And yes, it's both comedy and, you know, that rom-com genre. Uh, but obviously it's something fresh. And as you mentioned, it's the first predominantly, you know, Asian cast since Joy Luck Club in like, 93. So it's been a while. And as you said, very much underserved. So it, it, that has a chance to actually be a very, very big breakout star. You know, it's like I said, it has the early opening with being like a Wednesday and Thursday before the weekend. But you know, the weekend, it could bring in. 25 to 30, maybe 35. That would be pretty crazy, but I don't know. We'll see. Spike Lee's Black Klansman opened 10.8 million fifth place, but I know it was only 1,500 screens. What's what's a realistic number for this movie, which I think is the best of the year so far? Um, he obviously won the runner-up prize, the Cannes Film Festival. Spike did, and the movie did. I think he's got a shot at at least getting nominated for an Oscar, especially now with this mm-hmm. new category, which I think Black Panther is going to win most popular film, and I think Black Klansman might be able to actually get into the Oscar race. What's a good number for Spike? 30 million, 40 million, 50 million? Well, it, it depends on, I have to look more closely on what its theater expansion is going to be, how many more theaters it's going to add. Usually if something opens up very well like that, like you said, it's about 1,500 theaters, they're going to go ahead and move it into a few more theaters, especially since we're at the end of summer and there's not a lot of tentpole movies out there. So there's plenty of theaters, uh, theater space. So, I don't know, 10.8 million. Um, I mean, it could definitely do, depending on how it legs out, I mean, it can do, 30 to 40, maybe, maybe close to 50, then maybe a bit of a stretch. But uh, I think that 30 to 40 range, and that's very, very solid, especially for these, these indie flicks. That's a lot of money. You know, I think Tom Cruise is a loathsome cretin, but apparently people tell me this latest Mission Impossible is one of the, my friend Cab says it's like a top five action movie of all time. And I know it got whatever, 97% Rotten Tomatoes. I will have to get Ricky and Dan to see it on my behalf because, you know, I just mm-hmm. can't do that. But financially, did it do well compared to the other Mission Impossibles? Tell me, please tell me it didn't do well, like in relation to budget or something, or like China is not interested in Tom Cruise. <laughs> and, and I'm sorry, pretty much most people are interested in Tom Cruise despite his uh, extracurricular activities. Yeah, um, and I will admit it was one of my favorite movies of the summer, so I'll throw that out there right now. But, I mean, it, it opened to $61 million its opening weekend, which was a franchise best. Oh. I mean, it's holding, it's holding very well. It's all the well time we have, Alec. Week. It's been a real pleasure having <laughs> you on the podcast. All the best. <laughs> well, okay, so it's now at $161 million, which is actually number six right now for the summer box office list. And it's going to climb that, probably make it on the top five, uh, very possibly. Yeah, you mentioned the 97% Rotten Tomato score, 86 meta score, which all this just means only one thing. You're Tom Cruise. Boycott must endure for many, 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 many more years, unless, of course, you know, one of his death 
the stunt. I can't talk. Unless, of course, whatever the death of the flying stunts finally does him in. It's very possible. Yeah, see, you're telling me there's a chance. Uh, lastly, <laughs> there's always a chance. You told me there's some trivia you have. Is this? I'm hoping this includes Dan and Rick as well. But you have some trivia for us. I don't know if this is uh, cinephile related or some of some are box office related. What do you have? Well, let's just say it's a combination of both. It, it's mostly uh, related to the box office, but it, it has a bit of a, a cinephile twist to it, I guess. All right. Well, Dan and Rick are so, right now, yes, full this, attention. Yeah. Yes, definitely. You need need all the help that you can get here. All right. Let's start off. I, I've got five of them here for you. Right off the bat, Paul Giamatti's highest grossing movie, and we're talking domestic here. Okay. Sideways? No, I only sideways made that much. Uh, Cinderella Man only made that much. Private Parts? No. Um, Ricky, you want to wager a guess? Stan's going to are doing correctly, which is just going. I think Ricky's cheating and actually Googling Giamatti's list. I am not Googling. He's on box office mojo right, right now, isn't he? But, it, but it's good. It's a good one. You know, you know what? He was in Saving Private Ryan. He's a small role in Saving Private Ryan. You're so close. It's actually, I think with inflation, that definitely would be number one. But his Hangover Part 2 oh, had a very right. small role as a gangster or something in there. Yeah, he was terrible. And then there was a... Yeah. No, I adore Jimmy, but it was it was not a good role. He looks like inflated, and did you speak of inflation? He looked inflated in the movie. The movie was awful. <laughs> oh, that's disappointing. It's Giamatti's highest. I didn't know you were capable. To, oh, that's tough. I didn't know you were capable of uh, saying such harsh things about Paul Giamatti. There, listen, and, and I, I, I adore him, but that's listen. I got I to tell the truth here. What's the next trivia question? Okay, so which actor has grossed more money at the box office in their career? So we're talking about the money their movies made, their box office grosses. You know, not the individual actors' salaries. Right, so which actor has grossed more money at the box office in their career? Paul Giamatti or Al Pacino? Uh, so this is, sorry, you said not to inflation, right? This is just total dollars. That's correct. All right, so then I would think, well, Pacino's done a lot of movies, though, man. I, 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 Al's just done like 50 movies. He's just done more movies than Giamatti. He doesn't, and I mean, if you adjusted to inflation, obviously the Godfather's enormous, but I, I will go with Pacino just on length and duration. You'd be incorrect. No, uh, Giamatti has... One point nine billion to Pacino's one point four five. Are you kidding? Wow! Like Paul Giamatti's movies, four hundred fifty million dollars more than Al Pacino's movies. Yeah, well, you have, just have to think about what Giamatti was in. So you have those those big tentpole movies. He was in one of the Spider Man movies. He was in you said Saving Private Ryan. He was in The Hangover Part Two. That, those right. are, those, those add up, you know. And just and just none of people saw Simone. Poor Al. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not, including Alec right here. All right, uh, next question. It's a very similar question. I'm going to give you the lifetime grosses of the four actors, or I'm going to give you lifetime grosses of four actors, and you have to match that actor to the number that I give you. Yep. Um, you're going to need some help from uh, the guys here. Yeah, Dan's got the so, pen ready. Ready to go. Yep. Good. Okay, your four actors are Bobby De Niro. Yep. Eddie Murphy. Yep. Stanley Tucci. Love Tucci. And Tommy Cruz. Oh, jeez. I was going to say, I love how you're giving this to me, and then all of a sudden you're going to get that. <laughs> all right, so here's the number. Uh, the numbers. You have $3.2 billion, mm-hmm. $3.7 billion, yep. $3.8 billion, yep. and $3.9. Listen, I'm just this thrilled. All that, you're doing is just putting them in order. I, I am thrilled that uh, Stanley Tucci has, a, has movies that are over $3 billion. Like, that's amazing. Like, I love Tucci. Um, I'm going to go Tucci $3.2 billion. <sighs> That'd be incorrect. Oh, so I'm already off, okay? Uh, let me let me go to my guys here, Ricky and and Dan. You guys want to uh, before I start guessing? Hang on, let's go. Dan's got a lit. Let's go with Dan's first. Do it, do it. I'm gonna say Tom Cruise with three point nine. You'd be a wise man there, yes. Okay, 
Number two at $3.8 billion, is it De Niro, Murphy, or Tucci? Ricky? It's Eddie Murphy. Eddie Murphy at $3.8 billion, Alec. That is correct. He has a ton of those family <laughs> flicks, and those things always break $100 million, So, yes. So you're telling me that De Niro comes in <laughs> last year at $3.2 billion? Yeah, well, you have to think about Tucci. Hunger Games. He was in every one of those movies in the franchise. <laughs> yes. A billion dollars right there. Big tentpole movie. Yeah, yeah. So, poor, poor Bobby. All right. He tried with Dirty Grandpa. He tried getting back into the uh, the, the big uh, blockbuster game. but uh, <laughs> Molly Karam, big fan of that movie. Yeah. Uh, number four, <laughs> what do you have for us? <laughs> uh, all right, so we only have two more questions left. So, just in that same vein, because apparently I really love this category, um, can you name the top five grossing actors of all time? Like I said, it's in the same vein. So we're talking their movie grosses, you know, not their individual, you know, salaries. Sure. Can you name the top five? Uh, Tom Cruise. Can't. Tom Cruise is not in it. Not in the top five. Yes, that is good news. <laughs> uh, DiCaprio. Nope. No DiCaprio. Hanks. Hanks is number four. Phil like playing Family Feud. <laughs> good answer. Good answer. All right. Good answer. Yeah, right. yeah. I, just, I just love the clapping. It's my favorite part. Uh, Ricky, give a guess. <laughs> Danny was good with Hanks. What do you got? Denzel. Denzel Washington. No, no Denzel. Ah, racist. <laughs> <laughs> Wait till I give you the rest of the list, Ed, and thumb down. Give me Matt Damon. I will not give you Matt Damon, no. Brad Pitt. That. Brad Pitt. No Brad Pitt. Okay, Johnny Depp. No Johnny Depp. Okay, no, let's, I'll I, check I, that I'm, I'm going to give up now. Ricky, you want an answer? <laughs> How is it not Depp? All those Pirates of the Caribbean movies. All right, give us the list, well, You'll Alan. see why. All right, so uh, number five, you had Morgan Freeman. Yeah. I think he was in the Nolan Batman movies, and he's just been in a ton of stuff, too. Yep. Oh, Sam uh, Jackson? You guys got Sam Jackson's number one. Yes, yes. Sam Jackson is number one. But think about it. Think about it. The Avengers movies, every single one of them, he's, I don't know, maybe two of them, he doesn't make an appearance. So he gets credit for every single time he appears as Nick Fury in a movie, and those things always crank. You know, half half a mil plus. You know, wow. Okay, yeah, so we had Morgan Freeman five, Tom Hanks four, Robert Downey Jr. So another Avenger, oh, yeah. number three. The number two was a little bit of a shock to me, but maybe it shouldn't be. Harrison Ford is number yeah. two. Shouldn't be, but you're you right. He's a star. You forget about it a little bit. Oh yeah, Star Wars, Indiana Jones, Air Force One. Yeah, when you have those tentpole movies. Yep. Wow, you're, you're okay. embarrassing Bye. us here. This is great. What do you got for the last one? That was the plan, and we'll see if I can continue that. Final question. This award-nominated movie was snubbed for Best Picture at the Oscars, made very little money at time of theatrical release, but audiences eventually found it on Shawshank DVD Redemption. and TV. Shawshank Redemption. All right, so it has a modest, quote-unquote, modest cult following, 85% of Rotten Tomatoes, plus cinephiles absolutely adore it. So well, you can you can answer the same thing if you want. I'll give you multiple, sure. give you multiple choice here. Pulp Fiction. Quiz show, Shawshank Redemption, or Weddings and a Funeral. Wait, did you say it was nominated for an Oscar? I, I said this was this. Uh, I just said it was award nominated. Yeah, so it's Shawshank Redemption. Actually, it's a tr- trick question. I was looking for Grandma's Boy. It has an eighty-five percent audience score, Rotten Tomatoes. It made only six million at the box office in two thousand six, but allegedly pulled in over fifty million in DVD sales and rentals. It is cinephile approved by Rick Passmore. Rob Schneider was nominated for Worst Actor of the Decade Razzie in 2010, with Grandma's Boy being one of his movies, of course. And as you may know, it did not win Best Picture of the Academy Awards. But to be fair, Outstanding Achievement in Popular Film was not yet a category. So there you go. 
I had mission accomplished. I did make you guys look like fools in my trivia. That's all I was trying to accomplish here, guys. Well played, Alec. Alec <laughs> Bloom getting it done. Cinefool is his podcast. He is, of course, a part of Fantasy Movie League, FML. Be a part of it and play it. You know, the movies I love, Alec, as you know, are not the movies that make the most money, but I like playing it just because it reminds me what movies are coming out. So it's like, okay, well, great. We got Mile 22 out this weekend. And then, you know, I don't really care how I do in the actual, <laughs> actual FML, but I, I love the site and I love the uh, app. Just to remind me what's happening. So kudos for that. Your boy, Matthew oh. Barry, and for doing such a good job with us. And I look forward to chatting with you and your podcast next week. Fantastic. Thank you, Ed, Dan. Giamatti forever. <laughs> All right. When tracking the domestic dust bunny, you commonly find them hiding under wardrobes next to lost socks. Don't move too suddenly or they'll scurry off. What's utterly fascinating about the dust bunny is that although they are not actually sentient creatures, when they hear that Geico not only saves people money, but also has a 97% customer satisfaction rating, it's obvious to them you should switch. Because yes, switching to Geico is a no-brainer. Oh no, it's the dust bunny's only natural predator. Run along, dust bunnies, run along. All right, so that was Alec Bloom. Thanks again to him. He was terrific. i got a few more movies to review before we get to the rest of the regular segments here on Cinephile. Also, I buried the lead, so I got this uh, FedEx envelope today, and I got really excited. I said, oh, man, it's award season. Somehow, Lines has figured out a way to get me into the Broadcast Film Critics Association. I'm going to start getting movie reviews. Instead, I open it up here, and I said, what in the world? And it's a, a People magazine, special edition. And it says, hi there, just want to draw your attention to the special edition of People magazine dedicated to NBC's Emmy Award-nominated hit series, This Is Us. This issue is a great retrospective on the first two seasons of the series, pivotal episodes, memorable scenes, cast interviews, as well as a sneak peek of what to expect for season three, which begins Tuesday, September 25th at 9 p.m. Eastern from Chip and Natalia. Now that I've mentioned that, the first person who tweets Cinephile, and you can just write, this is us. You can go ahead and get this People magazine, which Dan Stanzik and Rick Passport are going to send you, because I'm not going to be reading this. That's your first free gift giveaway here, but this is us. Just doesn't you're just going to tweet, this is us. I also have a book. I, I reviewed the Nick Nolte book. At the end of the podcast, Passport will have come up a question, either specific to Nolte or specific to Cinephile, and you can win my, you know, I'll go ahead and autograph it right now. My free autograph copy of Nick Nolte, Rebel, My Life Outside the Lines. It is autographed by yours truly, and it's a terrific look at one of America's finest leading men. All right, so back to the movies. I know foreign films are not everyone's taste. We'll do this relatively quickly. First one I want to talk about is The Insult, which is a story about a set in Beirut in Lebanon between a Christian mechanic and a Palestinian Muslim man. So what happens is the Palestinian Muslim man runs a construction company. They're going around to clean some of the places. And he starts replacing some equipment there. The Christian guy comes out in his balcony. He's like, hey, get out of here. Like, what are you doing? He's like, no, we're going to replace these. We're from the city. He's like, no, get out of here. Uh, he goes back. And after the Palestinian guy is done cleaning it, Christian guy goes back and just puts like a sledgehammer to the thing that he tried to fix. And the Palestinian guy's down there like just incredulous. You know, calls him an effing prick, and I hope we can say prick. And then he comes back, sprays a little water on him, and Palestinian guy goes back, and his boss tells him, "Listen, we got a real situation. This guy complained about you. You got to go apologize." He goes, "Hey, I was just doing my job," and all of a sudden he was furious with me, and he broke it. So I, yeah, I called him a name, and he threw some water. At me. He's like, "Well, you got to go back and apologize." He's like, "All right, fine." So he goes with his boss. They go to meet where this guy works as a mechanic, and they, it's a very heated confrontation. Very quickly, because the Christian guy doesn't want to hear it. The Muslim guy doesn't want to apologize anyways. And then eventually he hurls the insult, which is the title of the film. So immediately I'm like, oh, what is the insult? 
And how could you base an entire movie on an insult? After what the Christian guy says, Palestinian guy punches him, assaults him, ends up breaking a couple of ribs, and then this becomes a huge court case. Mechanic sues the construction worker, and now you've got a country, which I don't know how everyone is familiar with the geopolitics of Lebanon, but it's fairly split between those two faiths. And so now you've literally got, you know, one side's on one, one side's on the other, and you've got this whole exploration of politics and faith and how it deals with that. What I found fascinating about it was that you start to worry about words and to say, you know, the the poisonous aspect of certain words and insults, and if ever assault can be justified or exonerated. And that's what the court case ends up becoming, is that did what the guy say, did it justify violence? Is there anything you can say that can justify violence in this case? So I thought about it because, you know, you actually just think of yourself, is there anything I would, I could, I would physically assault somebody and then I think I could get away with it? Because I think the honest answer is no. Like whatever you say, as, as hateful and as mean spirited as it can be, you can't punch a guy. Like period. But the, but the movie kind of goes into different directions and there's a couple surprises to it. Keith Law, who's of course a good friend of ours and uh, loves a good foreign film, he thought it was a little formulaic, but he goes, it's, it's fascinating. And I agree with him. It's very gripping from start to finish. You do kind of connect the dots and see where it's headed which is why I'm going to give it only three Maple Leafs. But, I mean, at the same time, I do think it's a journey that's worth exploring. And I love seeing the documentary with Ziad Dafuri, who's the director, who's Lebanese, but he's been in America for 18 years, but he went back to shoot at Lebanon. And he goes, I didn't think there'd be enough good actors there. I thought I'd have to go to Egypt or Tunisia, but he goes, I found these great actors. And the guy who defends the Christian, great lawyer, and the whole time I'm thinking, he's like James Mason in The Verdict. I'm like pumping my fist watching the doc when Ziad goes, I had to find a great actor, and I was worried if I had to find an actor in Egypt, and he goes, you know, I need a James Mason type. And the interviewer, Richard Pena, is like, yeah, The Verdict. He's like, oh, The Verdict is one of my favorite films. That's, as soon as I made a courtroom drama, I had to have, who is going to be my James Mason? I'm like, yeah, exactly. This guy's like James Mason. He's awesome. He almost steals the movie because he's so good the way he just attacks this guy and saying that, like, he is, like, so mean in certain instances. He goes, oh, when are the Palestinians going to stop complaining about the fact They've been marginalized. Like, we got it. He goes, what about the gays? What about the Jews? What about the blacks? Like, everybody's been pushed apart here, okay? Just because your people have, like, we have been split. Lebanese Christians, he goes, we've been um, criticized in this country. We've been the, uh, attacked by violence by the PLO. So there's, I mean, at times it is a very heated topic. And I'm sure if somebody is, is really familiar with that terrain, they'd find it very interesting. But uh, do you guys want to know what the insult actually is? Or should I just pretend people are actually going to go find this foreign film here? I kind of want to hear it. Yeah. I think I should just tell you, because I don't know if people are going to be like, well, what is the actual? So the insult he says to him, the Christian mechanic first starts out just by saying like, hey, we don't want you, that kind of thing. Which, by the way, Z had pointed out, because I, I found this fascinating in the interview. He goes, you're watching this to foreign audiences. He goes, oh, we want other people to see this. He goes, well, how did the Christian know that he's Palestinian? To be blunt, he goes, they all look Arab. So he goes, how, how, how is the audience going to know which religion a guy is? And he's, and how does the Christian guy know, first of all? And he goes, well, in the movie, he even says, I could tell by your accent that you're Palestinian. And he goes, but it's subtitled. So for a foreign audience, how can you tell that a guy's accent is even different? And he goes, well, what we had to, he goes, I thought about the italics being, or sorry, the, the subtitles in italics when one guy talks and the other guy talks. He goes, but then I thought it'd be a little bit too much. He goes, what we ended up doing is just having the mechanic later on in the courtroom scene just explain and so I could tell by his accent. I knew a bunch of Palestinians, et cetera. But I just thought that was interesting. When you're marketing to a foreign audience, how do you make an accent translate when nobody understands the language? The insult he says to him is, he goes, I wish uh, Sharon had killed all of you people. And so that is that is the line that gets him. Because he's kind of just saying Palestinians shouldn't be here. But he goes, I wish Ariel Sharon had just finished the job and killed all of you. And he goes back and punches him. I'm like, oh, my God. I'm like, wow. 
And in my head, I was thinking, I'm like, you could literally, it made me think of Spike. I'm like, do the right thing. That famous sequence where they're hurling racial epithets. I'm like, if you went through every ethnicity, like every person's background, I'm like, hey, what's the most hateful thing you could say to each person? I'm like, yeah, to a Palestinian, that's probably as bad as it gets. But credit to the movie. It, it does not, I'm telling you right now, it does not layer sides. It really does show, hey, Christian Lebanese have been the target of protests as well. And they've been victimized. They don't always go on one side. And the way it goes back and forth, it really is smart and engaging. So that is the insult. I'll give it three Maple Leafs. Uh, I bought the Blu-ray. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll offer up the Blu-ray for people because I don't know how many people are actually going to go and see it. But it's uh, a really good movie. Uh, now we'll go a little quicker. Loveless is a Russian film. I just gave it to Passmore. Uh, so I saw all the foreign films. And I've cut up six months late. A Fantastic Woman is the one that won. I'll do this one even quicker. It's about a trans woman who loses her lover and has to go through her life. To be honest with you, I thought it was very much a film of the moment. And I think that's a big reason why it won the Oscar. Obviously, trans politics are a very big story right now. I thought the lead actress was terrific. It's got a great title, by the way. A Fantastic Woman is a great title. But this is my biggest thing with movies. you got to have character and plot. Most box office films are all plot, no character. It's all action. And a lot of indie movies and foreign films are all character, no plot. It's just the story of this person and what's evolving. And in the case of A Fantastic Woman, it's just way too much character and no plot. The, literally, the plot is the lover dies and then uh, her lover's ex-wife is like, hey, I don't know what was going on with you and my ex-husband. Like, you're not allowed to come to the funeral. We have kids. Like, I don't even know what I'm looking at. Like, she's ostracized with the community. And then it's just what's life like for a trans woman after she's lost her lover. And I'm like, okay, while that is an exercise in empathy, and again, I thought it was well acted, and it's a story for an underserved audience, it doesn't make a compelling movie. There's just no interest in what actually happens. There's no three-act structure. I'm like, all right, got it. And kind of flatlines. So I wasn't surprised that it won the Oscar, but I, I from the movies I've seen, like, the insult to me was much better and this movie, Loveless, I think might be even better, this Russian film, which is by a filmmaker who uh, has been previously nominated for an Oscar as well. But how about this for the tagline? A missing child, a marriage destroyed, a country in crisis. There's your feel-good movie for a Friday night. Go check out Loveless. <laughs> even the movie title, Loveless. I'm like, all right, that's the kind of movies you're into, huh? But yeah, it's it's as simple as that. This couple is relatively estranged, even relatively. Forget the relative. They're estranged. They don't like each other anymore. She's got a boyfriend. He's got a girlfriend. They just have a son in common. They're finalizing their divorce. And then the kid goes missing. And what's crazy about the movie is that you would think to any parent, there's no bigger nightmare than a missing child. And yet to these two, it almost feels like an inconvenience. And there are some scenes of hostility between these two, some like epic sparring and bickering. It reminded me of some of the best of a Cassavetes film. Like you think of faces. I mean, Cassavetes, John Cassavetes, for those who aren't aware, father of the independent film movement. Shadows was the first indie movie ever in 1959. I love his film called Faces, which is about a marriage and, and their uh, argument and bickering. And he's got some really visceral scenes in his movies. A Woman Under the Influence, 1974. Gina Rowland's a good movie as well. But this movie reminded me of like the best of a cat. You hear the expressions of his movie people. It's, oh, it's kind of like Cassavetes. This is like the best of Cassavetes, just the, the, the grittiness of it. And the way it's shot, like anybody, and I don't think many do, but anybody who thinks of Russia is glamorous, you watch this one and you go, oh my goodness, it's just gray. It's just bleak. It's unrelenting. And the, the Russian police aren't even interested in finding the cop. Like you have to find search groups who are more interested in doing it. And so I thought what was interesting by the filmmakers, he's taking a personal story about two people who are very apathetic and then relating it to the entire country. And it becomes a social critique of Russia under Putin's rule that empathy is now gone and people don't care about each other anymore. Also amazing, he even gets the film made. Like, I was like, I don't even know how this guy, I don't know if he lives in Russia, but I'm like, my goodness, like, I know the backstory here, the KGB and stuff. Like, how, how does he get the movie released? But it's, it's awfully damning. And the movie is open ended. Uh, but I thought it was really well made. So if you're up for a 
fun night at the movies. Loveless is the one I recommend. Three Maple Leafs. And now we go rapid fire. Teen Titans go. If you like the TV show, you like the movie. I don't really know the TV show that well. I took the boys. It was fine. Two and a half Maple Leafs. Will Arnett's great. Will Arnett plays Slade. And they keep thinking that he's Deadpool. And he's like, no, I'm not Deadpool. I'm Slade. And they keep repeating his name. Arnett's always worth the price of admission. He's a great voiceover actor. Teen Titans go if you like that kind of thing. Two and a half Maple Leafs. And Hotel Transylvania 3. It's uh, fairly vapid, but it's colorful. Adam Sandler again using the same jokes as the past. I don't say blah, blah, blah. Well, give it two Maple Leafs. Pleasant enough time waster. Um, those are the movies that we needed to review. A Hollywood career spanning decades. And the tales of Tinseltown are told here. Inside the Lion's Den with Ben Lyons. Hey, what's up, Adnan? What's up, Cinephile family? Ben Lyons here. In the Lion's Den, as Adnan mentioned, of course, you can download the Lion's Den podcast on Podcast One. But right now, we're on the Cinephile podcast. So, time for a behind-the-scenes Hollywood story. Adnan and I were on the Dan Lebitard show this week talking about Black Klansman, which is the most critically acclaimed movie Spike Lee has done since uh, 2006's Inside Man, one of his, I think, his largest uh, uh, box office to date. Uh, that was the first movie I ever actually interviewed, uh, reviewed on the E channel back in 2006. And I remember sitting in the green room. It was kind of a, a live audition. So they're going to put me on the show, but I was still auditioning to try to get more work with E. And it was the first film I was reviewing at E. And I'm in the green room. And who was waiting to go on the show is Michael Rappaport. And I will never forget Michael Rappaport sitting in the green room grilling me. Let me ask you a question. Who the f- are you? Let me ask you a question. You're going to. F- go on there and talk about the movies you're like 20 years old what the f- what, what, what are you going to say about movies and i just remember having to stand up for myself and review that film and i go out on the set and just i did it in one take when the stage manager tom who you guys might know from the soup gave me like a round of applause and was like yeah you shut that rapaport up uh I, I knew that i was uh I, I did okay and then i ended up working at the e-channel for like six years so i want to thank michael rapaport for challenging me in the green room back in 2006 when i reviewed spike lee's inside man actors in three words this is old school here this is just for mark simon by the way mark simon and i he loves the podcast like no other. He After he heard we were going on hiatus, he was like, he was in a state of despair. And I was like, listen, we've got vacation here, man. we got to go celebrate. And he was like, oh, just I missed the podcast. So just for Mark, this was a few weeks ago, at least maybe a month ago, he asked him. Yeah, I think it was about a month and a half ago, and these are right from Mark's tweet. We'll start with Chadwick Boseman. Okay, Chadwick Boseman. Um... I'm going to go with Sneaky Old. He's like 43. <laughs> how do i say in three words he always plays like famous black historical figures like he does jackie robinson he does like thurgood marshall he does like james brown like i don't know how you say that but I, I iconic black figures there's my three words saoirse ronan uh irish you know i love that movie brooklyn <laughs> pale which i i think often goes hand in hand irish pale and uh earthy i like earthy Steve Martin. Uh, this was the easiest one. I saw this. I was delighted to do this. Crazy and funny. Or wild and crazy. I think you're doing it wrong. We used to do like three actual phrases. Now you're doing like three actual words. We used to do like three separate phrases. Okay, fine, fine. I'm going to go actually with this. Um, cerebral. Cause that guy is a playwright. 
He also, eclectic, cerebral and eclectic, I'm going for sure. He's a renowned banjo player. Yeah, he plays the banjo for God's sakes. Like he used to, like his comedy bits used to have like an arrow in his head. He'd play the banjo and he writes plays and Martin, and Martin Short. Then I'll just say Short. Speaking of Martin Short, that Netflix special that uh, Steve Martin and Martin Short did, Three and a Half Maple Leaps, it's, a, it's fantastic. Yeah, Simon told me he didn't like it because he goes, I thought you were going to review it. I'm like, well, I mentioned it. Then he goes, oh, it's terrible. But now I'm back in. Passport liked it. He goes, oh, he goes, it was like two Maple Leafs. Three and a half. Cerebral, eclectic, short for Martin Short. I feel like we've done this one before, but Rachel McAdams. Yeah. Canadian, uh, perky. Yeah, I think we said like next, uh, girl next doorish. Yeah, 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 yeah. We're just cheating the three words. Yeah, girl next doorish. I think she got some range too. Maybe range? You think so? Yeah, I mean, she was in Mean Girls. She did The Notebook. She did Game Night. Game Night, she's great. Spotlight. Spotlight, you're right. Actually, you know, I forgot. You're right. She's range, range. Good answer. Good answer. Good answer. <laughs> and finally, Christopher Plummer. Uh, Canadian, uh, octogenarian, uh, literate. Like he could do Shakespeare out of the park. In, in Canada, they have Stratford in the park and like he just does Shakespeare like you wouldn't believe. He's like the Olivier of Canada. He always goes back to like, what do you need me to do? King Lear? Watch this. I'll knock this sucker out. No problem. Then I'll go save Ridley Scott's movie, All the Money in the World. But that's the three words that I'm talking about. All right. Every man coming up next. He's just an average man with an average life, and his reviews dictate that. Oh, right up my alley. First and foremost, playing to my strength. Dan Stanzik is. I thought it was a little, little much. Every man. I just saw Randy, too. Like, he could clearly change up that open. He's got plenty of time in his hands. Really resent that open. What direction are we going to go in? Last time we were Inside Man, so I like that, A, you had a Spike Lee movie. Maybe you were foreshadowing Black Klansman's coming out. Maybe you just happened to watch it again. The, the rule generally you like to do is that it's a movie that you rewatch. You were with your family vacation five days living like a Luddite. You had no TV, no computer, no nothing. So in the last week, you must have rewatched this movie. That's right, and we'll just dive right in. What you got ain't nothing new. This country's hard on people. You can't stop what's coming. It ain't all waiting on you. That's vanity. Yes. No Country for Old Men, a 2007 Coen Brothers film, my favorite of theirs, based on the Cormac McCarthy novel of the same name. The title, which I didn't understand until some last-minute internet research, is from the first line of a W.B. Yeats poem called Sailing to Byzantium, which is about the agony of old age and the imaginative and spiritual work required to remain a vital individual, even when the heart is, quote, fastened to a dying animal, i.e. the body. This sentiment is oozing out of Tommy Lee Jones, who plays an aging sheriff in rural Texas in 1980. His opening monologue about sending a boy who killed his 14-year-old girlfriend to the electric chair sets the tone for the entire film. In theory, Jones is our protagonist, but he's absent for long stretches because of our other two main characters. The first of which is Josh Brolin, who plays a poor welder with a young wife that stumbles across a drug deal gone wrong in the desert while out on a weekend hunt. Brolin tracks down the last of the survivors, the ultimate hombre, who is dying underneath a tree and discovers a briefcase packed with $2 million in cash. Our third major player is Javier Bardem, who plays a strange-looking hitman with a terrifying smile named Anton Chigurh that traipses around Texas with some sort of air tank killing machine. He is hired to track down Brolin and the money, so we have Bardem chasing Brolin and Tommy Lee Jones tracking down Bardem in the wake of his murders, but he knows that Brolin is on the run, so he's effectively chasing them both. No matter which hotel or hospital on the Texas-Mexico border Brolin winds up in, Bardem always seems to find him. There are a series of scenes that are chock full of suspense. The two endure close call after close call, waiting in silence, a shootout, and even a phone call. No Country for Old Men is by no means an action movie. Quite the opposite. 
It's weighty, but it's never boring. It's just that the scenes are not rushed. There's almost a palpable tension throughout, and a lot of that is created by Bardem, who is a revelation. Not only did he win the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor, his character is thought of as one of the best villains of all time. While he is menacing and gruesome, he appears to operate by a strange set of rules. He seems fixated on chance, fate, and circumstance. There is one scene in a gas station that is particularly chilling. No one in the film really knows how to describe him, but Woody Harrelson, who plays another hitman hired to find the money, says of Bardem that, quote, He's a peculiar man. Might even say he has principles. Bardem undoubtedly steals the movie, but it's really about Tommy Lee Jones and his reluctance to continue his fight against the harsh reality of society. While I'm giving No Country for Old Men four stars, I do have one major gripe, and it's that we never see the conclusion between Bardem and Brolin. That said, it's the best Coen Brothers movie, it has the best villain in recent memory, it was worthy of best picture, and it's excellent upon a repeat viewing. Best one you've done so far, not only because I love the movie so much, but phenomenal villain. Like, I think... Somebody was at, they did a poll recently of the best villains and like Anton Chigurh was like number eight. And I was, I was thrilled that people were like, yeah, yeah, that is a great villain. Like normally people mention it. They'll go like Darth Vader and you go like Hal 9000. But like, I'm telling you, Anton Chigurh could be a top fight. Amazing in that movie. What, what does he say? You don't have to do this. What? They always say you don't have to do this. They always say that. I mean, the hair's awful. He joked about it. He was like, oh, I guess when he won the Oscars, they made me do this ridiculous hair. And it was, it was so weird being on set. I'm supposed to be so menacing and people would be laughing at me because of his stupid haircut. But the, the Coen brothers explained it. They go, we wanted him to look like, like a prep school kid. Like, you know, that bad haircut when you're a kid. And he goes, it, it looks boyish on him and it, it belies his menace. Three things. Dave Fleming, shout out. I don't, there's no chance Fleming listens to the pod. Dave Fleming, his favorite movie is No Country for Old Men. Although we prefer Adam Amin, because Adam Amin listens to the pod all the time. What's up, Amin? How are we doing? I hope the Phillies game was fun. Um, and the fact that Fleming goes best way there, I go, here's my issue. And one of the, which is what you said, uh, the fact you don't see Brolin, but here's the big one. And I kind of like not knowing. I, I kind of like having to search and I hope you two can help with this, but I don't really understand the ending. And, and even people who love the film said after Brolin dies, the movie just kind of goes a little bit. And I'm okay with that. You know, I'm, I'm okay with a little bit of, detouring. And I, I find Tommy Lee Jones's last speech to be fascinating and enigmatic, even though I don't really understand it. And I asked someone, they go, well, he's talking about this dream. And then I wake up because I think what he's saying is that he's now irrelevant. Like he, as you said, he can't keep up. He doesn't have the grind, but I hear very various theories to it. I just think as a movie, it's interesting. I feel it peaks after the Brolin death. I don't mind that it kind of like trickles a bit, but I don't know. I, I I find it interesting. Do you have a specific take on that part of the last 10, 5 minutes? Yeah, I think what he was saying in this dream is that his his father's going ahead in, in making some sort of fire and he's going to catch up with him. So he's come from a family of lawmen and his father never really quit, but he's he's getting fed up and he can't really handle what's going on in society with all the crime anymore. So he kind of wants to resign from his sheriff position, which he eventually does. And no one else in his family really did. So it, it kind of got the better of him, and he had to walk away when everyone else in his family didn't. I mean, he goes and he talks to his uncle, and his uncle's telling him stories about his father, their great-grandfather, and how none of them really quit, and they were all in law enforcement. So I think he's the, he's the only one in the family that really couldn't handle it, so to speak. Yeah, I like it even more now. I like the fact that it, like you have to think about it. Rick, do you agree with that uh, resolution? Or do you remember that? Yeah. yeah, I totally agree with you and, and Dan. It's He's basically saying that, like the title of the film, this is no country for old men. He can't keep doing what he's doing because everything's evolving around him and he's getting older and he needs to leave some of this stuff behind. And even with the type of crimes that are being committed over what it is and the type of villain that Shigur is, 
it's not what he's used to. It's not what he's, you know, been doing his entire life in, in pursuit of justice. This is an anomaly. And it's something that's showing like the evolution of humanity in time where this, I, I can't do this anymore. This is not what I'm about. I can't continue to follow this pursuit. I need to let someone else kind of take it over and allow myself to just go off and, and just live the rest of my days doing what I, what I feel I need to do. You know, the world isn't what it used to be. Yeah. And, and that's what Tommy Lee Jones's final speech kind of alludes to and, and, prophesizes in a way and, and the trickling down after the James Rowland's murder uh, yeah. Josh Boland's murder and the whole thing of the walking off and those kids kind of witnessing what's going on and doesn't he I, I, I kind of it's a little hazy because it's been a while since I've watched it but with the uh, the two kids on the bike and he gives them like $50 and yeah. said you saw nothing or whatever it was and he just yeah. kind of walks off with the limp and everything you know it's kind of in passing on this here are these two young boys that are a complete blank slates as far as we're concerned, and they're now embroiled with this evil that, that Anton Chigurh is, and now you have the next scene, Tommy Lee Jones kind of, you know, prophesizing, well, times are changing and it's not, not up for our generation anymore. It, it's a weird, di- it's a weird dynamic to have, and it's a very interesting one at that to kind of sit and ponder after the film. Yeah, I, I, it was a really daring way the Cumbers at the end of that movie. I remember sitting there going, "Like that's that's not it's atypical of what you're thinking," which is just it's a cat and mouse game, right? We're trying to chase the killer, here's what's going to go down. I'm like, wow, you kind of just they kind of went in this lamenting of the past. The other issue I have is this: as great as it is, I was upset when they won Best Picture. As much as I love the Cumbers, I was upset when they won because I wanted There Will Be Blood to win, and I wanted Paul Thomas Anderson to win Best Director. And it's funny they said that they were shooting actually in very similar areas, I believe, in West Texas. So, like, P.T. Anderson and the Cones, were, I wouldn't say they were going for coffee, but they were aware of what was happening. They were aware that they were both making these really gigantic, grandiose period pieces. And I did think interesting, when the New York Times did that list, the best ones since the century, there will be blood ranked high. I don't think No Country for Old Men cracked their top 20. It's interesting that as great a movie it is, I don't think it was the best movie of that year. When a film critic and director don't see eye to eye, Rick Passmore goes in defense of. Well, Grandma's boy, Alec Bloom, clearly was a fan of. What else are we defending? Well, usually when I'm going in defense of a movie, I'm tackling something that critics have panned. But this isn't the case with Bowfinger, the 1999 (laughs) Steve Martin, Eddie Murphy vehicle written by Martin and directed by Frank Oz. This is already the best one you've ever done. (laughs) While Rotten Tomatoes scores Bowfinger at a certified fresh 81%, it only took in 98 million worldwide on a $55 million budget. And viewers hold a less favorable favorable view of it uh, with 61% on Rotten Tomatoes and a 6.4 on IMDb. This time the critics are correct in their reception, even almost 20 years later. The story revolves around Bobby Bowfinger, a middle-aged aspiring filmmaker who sets out with his life savings, a little over $2,000, to shoot a sci-fi script, Chubby Rain, written by his accountant friend, Afrim. (laughs) But with his delusions of grandeur running rampant in his head, he plays the con game to get the film made, hiring a studio PA as a director of photography just because he has equipment uh, access to equipment, brings on migrant day laborers as his crew, and cast wannabe actors with big dreams and little talent, including a great comedic performance from Heather Graham. The biggest play is that the film features the hottest action star in the world, Kit Ramsey, Eddie Murphy, without his knowledge. 
Bowfinger and crew follow Kit around his daily life, shooting scenes from afar and having actors say their dialogue to him with a bespectacled, with a bespectacled brace face stand-in, also played by Eddie Murphy, for when they can't get close enough to Kit. But what they don't know is that Ramsey, in his heated confidence and swagger, is also paranoid of aliens and pod people. And wouldn't you know it, Chubby Rain is about just that. It's a 90s take on Ed Wood. And while a lot of the industry jokes are quite dated, as well as playing someone's mental disorders for laughs, it is charming, and it is fun, and it's a fun take on filmmaking and ambition. We're still given the the fast-talking PG-13 Murphy that encompassed the decade and the arrogant attitude Martin's best known for throughout his career, but there's earnest moments with trying to achieve a dream and a vision. As someone who's experienced fast and cheap filmmaking, I appreciate what Martin and Oz go for in their own vision. Coming in at a favorable 97 minutes, Bowfinger pairs well with the with films like Ed Wood and Get Shorty and should be a DVD in most cinephiles' libraries. And if you don't want to purchase an optical disc of it, Bowfinger's currently available to watch on Showtime. Easily the best thing you've ever done. Bowfinger is fantastic. I, I've, I've definitely seen it twice in theaters. I may have seen it three times. Like I loved it. I remember I saw it and I took my cousins and like, you really love this movie. Like, I think it's hilarious. And I love the Get Shorty Ed Wood comp. Of course, I love movies about movies. Go ahead, Ricky. Shout out to listener and Twitter follower Gary Campbell who said, did you really just recommend that I watch Bowfinger? That's mean. Well, Gary, this is why I recommended it. I'm going in defensive. Oh, absolutely. Bowfinger is fantastic. And some big time shots at Scientology, which is uh, the group that Terrence Stamp is representing as uh, Steve Martin in the movie calls them Mind Something. And I love the ending. He says, as a screenwriter, his dream is one day a UPS driver is going to come around the door and give him a script. And the, the, I, I was like literally on the floor laughing. It's in slow motion. <laughs> you just see Steve Martin look and there's a UPS driver and he just hands him a script. And he goes, we're going to China. They're going to go make this Kung Fu movie, which is just so absurd. I like a lot of things about Bowfinger. I like Steve Martin a lot in general. We ever see Martin on Cinefile, I'm telling you. Cerebral, eclectic, guy plays the banjo. I got a lot of time for Steve Martin. Uh, this was a lot of fun. Uh, the next couple of weeks, there's not very many good movies coming out. So I'll be honest. I don't know how many movies we're going to review next time, but I did get the Entertainment Weekly Fall Movie Preview, which I cannot wait to dive into. So the next Cinephile, we'll do our best movies of the year so far. So the first eight months of the year, a little Black Klansman, a little uh, First Reformed, movies like that. And then I'll preview some movies. Here's some movies we're fired up to go see, and then we'll go from there. For Dan Stanzik, Rick Passmore, Ben Lines, and the entire crew, I'm Adnan Burke. Once again, we'll see you before we do that. One last thing. Nick Nolte. So this is the one person who ever listens to the end of the podcast. If you want my Nick Nolte, now autographed book, Rebel, My Life Outside the Lines, on a review, I once quoted Jeff Pavir, the great Toronto Star film critic, as saying, Nick Nolte has a voice like what? If you tweet a cinephile ESPN, Nick Nolte has a voice like what? You can get an awesome book. Until next time, I'll see you at the movies. Don't miss out on the next episode of Cinephile. Subscribe to the Adnan Verk Movie Podcast by clicking the Listen tab in the ESPN app.